We just come before you and we ask you to bless this time as we open the word and, and share with us what you would have us to see. And we just thank you for your word and that you love us so much and give us a, your pictures of who you are in your scriptures. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he has girded himself. And the world also is established that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established of old. You are from everlasting. The fools have lifted up, O Lord. The flu, oh, excuse me. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your, your testimonies are very sure. Holiness becomes your house, O Lord, forever. This is a very short psalm, so we might make it into the second psalm tonight, another psalm tonight, but we're going to start looking at this. The Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. The Lord is clothed in strength wherein he has girded himself. The word, the world is established and cannot be moved. The Lord reigns. And this is something we want to keep in mind. We've been talking a lot about this. God reigns. He is going to get his way all the time. All right? And this is something that a lot of people chafe at, the idea that God reigns and he is in charge. And his sovereignty is, is an absolute. He knows everything. He will do his way. And we see this all the time in what God does. He says all things work together for good according to, uh, for those who have, or all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Let's get that verse right. <laughs> it, he cannot make that promise unless he is sovereign and his rules always apply. Mm -hmm. Okay? And we want to be aware of this. And it does not mean that he is always, that he predetermines everything that happens, but he is always going to make sure, especially for his children, by his sovereign decree that it will work out for good. And not necessarily for our good, we've covered that many times, it's not always for our good, but it is for good so that he is glorified. And this is that promise, the Lord reigns. He reigns, he is in control. And again, we've talked about how this does not mean as much to us in Americans, because we, we don't have a ruler who is sovereign. Most countries don't have a ruler that's sovereign anymore, but when David's writing this, the king was sovereign. Okay? If you remember uh, Alice in Wonderland, the Queen of Hearts kept saying, off with their heads. You know, she was representing the sovereign that could just make a decree and didn't have to explain themselves. And we in this age don't have that. Even the places that have kings anymore seem to have parliaments that actually run the place rather than rather than the kings. But here he says, God reigns. He is clothed in majesty. And majesty is splendor, glory. Uh, and you think about this, majesty, regal, lofty, stately, uh, grander, imposing. All the words that we bring out when we use the word majesty or majestic. And he is clothed in something that makes him look 
with great splendor and glory. And we see when Moses went before God on Mount Sinai, if you remember, he came down off the mountain after 40 days, and it says his face shone. He reflected the glory of God, and somehow his skin absorbed some of that light, and he, his face shone, and he had to wear a veil over, over the people couldn't, because people couldn't look at him. They couldn't look at Moses, and that was the reflected glory of God. Imagine if we have God in us enough to really reflect his glory in our life. His majesty, his glory shining forth out of our life because he's so much part of who we are. Have you ever met somebody who's been with God and you just you see the glory of God reflected off their, off their being? doesn't happen all the time, but every once in a while you'll come across somebody who's just been spending so much time the look on their face, the attitude that they carry is different. And it's in, easy enough to understand. Uh, I've been able to see many times how people have seen, you can see the glory of God. You can see when people are worshiping God. And you see also when they're not worshiping God. <laughs> the idea of the more we're with God, people will notice when we're with God. because. There's that shining there. There's his, his glory comes out. In Moses' case, he literally shone. And that, you know, I have never met anybody who's quite that close to God, but I have seen people who you just know they're with God. You just know when you're with them that they have that glory coming out of them, that personality of God coming out. Then it goes, the Lord is clothed with strength, power. He clothes himself with strength. He's the ultimate strength anyway. I mean, we've talked about this. He is all-knowing, all-powerful. Whatever God wants to have happen will ha happen. And this bothers some people sometimes when they say, well, God will make sure that what he wants to have happen can. And an example I think of is, is uh, Saul of Tarsus knocked off his horse with the glory of God blinding him. And, and God speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, you know, it's hard to kick against the pricks. And, who, and what does Saul say? Who are you, Lord? He knew who it was. And then the answer was, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And did, could Saul have said, no, I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to follow you. Well, he had a free will. He could have said, well, I'm not going to follow you. Even though, even though you've knocked me off the horse, blinded me, and you spoke to me personally, he could have said, no, I'm not going to follow you. No rational person would ever have said, no, I'm not going to follow you. And Paul then followed him. We look at Jeremiah, who, who's getting so tired of being beat and thrown into prison, actually usually thrown into cisterns. And he finally goes, God, I'm not going to say anything more for you. And the next, the next verse or two, he's going, God's word burned in my mouth and I couldn't help but speak with you, speak of you. God will get his way with us. Could Jeremiah have continued to say no to God? Of course he could have, if he wanted to fight that burning in his heart. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you, you just have to say something for God. It's a wonderful, scary feeling sometimes. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't want to speak, I don't want to speak, and God's saying, You've got to say this, you've got to say this, you've got to say this, and I mean, you end up having to say it because you really have no other choice. And this goes into God's majesty, his sovereignty. 
his desire and strength. He can make it so that we will do what he wants us to do. Does he do this with us all the time? No. Does he do it frequently? I believe he does it more than we even realize sometimes, that he kind of makes us do what he wants us to do without us thinking about, you know, understanding it. But it's amazing. It's amazing how God can make things happen. And, I, and I've shared with you times when everybody is always more worried about what's going on in my life than I am. It's like, God, God will provide warriors for us if we, if we don't want to worry. He'll, he'll provide other people to worry for us. And it happens in all the time in my life when I'm going, okay, God, you're in charge. I don't know why you're doing this. And this person will be worrying. This person will be worrying. It's amazing sometimes. I'm going, y'all are more worried about it than I am. And God allows things to happen. And I don't believe that people should worry. I don't think you do any good worrying. But people always worry for you. If you don't want to worry for yourself, other people will worry for you. So... But he says he is clothed in strength wherewith he has girded himself. God has wrapped himself in his strength. It's also innate, but it says that he's wrapped himself in his strength. He's wrapped himself in his glory. It says the world was established that it cannot be moved. It means it cannot be dropped. It cannot be dislodged. God has placed the earth in its position he spun it as a top, it spins, it goes around the sun, and the whole galaxy is moving in a, in a, in a, in a motion around the galaxy, and the moon goes around the earth. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of motion. A lot of motion, and mathematically it makes things very difficult to try to figure out the motion of the planets and everything. But the advanced mathematicians have played with this and kind of figured out the different motions. But you know, this is kind of amazing when we think about how fast the Earth is moving in and of itself. And then the Earth is moving around the sun. And the sun's moving around the galaxy. So we're actually moving much faster than we ever calculated because we have multiple motions in multiple directions. But it makes it hard to think about it because of you have our circling, which the Earth is slowing down every, the actual rotation of the Earth is slowing down every year. The this Earth is slowing down in its rotation around the sun every year. And the sun probably is slowing, around, slowing in its rotation around the galaxy, even though we have a hard time measuring it because we don't have any way, to, way, way it is. But you know, the funny thing about all of this is it just proves that God started everything. Mm-hmm. He spun the world like a top. And it's been getting slower every year since it started. Not greatly, I think it's a quarter second every, every 10 years or something, but the earth is slow, the actual spin of the earth is slowing down. The, the, the moon is moving further away from the earth with every, every passing year. Eventually, if, if the earth was millions of years old like the scientists want to be, the moon would be someplace spun off long ways from us because it would have lost the gravitational pull of the, of the earth and been pulled someplace else which is one of the reasons that we can know we have a short, a young Earth, because the moon is moving away from us. And if we were millions of years old, our moon would be gone. All these different facts are interesting. Again, this, the rotation of the Earth tells us that it's been slowing down. It was either extremely fast a million years ago, and nothing could have lived on it because it would have been spun right off, or we're not millions of years old, which is what the Bible tells us. 
So we have all kinds of mathematical facts. We have all kinds of things that God's established this world. And the amazing thing is that we are, the world's axis has been changing over the, over the last few years. It is wobbling just like a top wobbles. If you spin a, one of those spinning tops, as it slows down, the axis of the top starts to wobble and more and more and more if you've ever paid attention to it until it finally flops over. This world has had its axis wobbling ever so slightly, but it wobbles. We every once in a while see a major shift in the wobble. But you know, this is the fun thing when we look at God established it, and it wasn't that long ago that he established it. These are all little facts when you start grabbing hold of and say, wow, God, you told the truth. You told the truth. You started everything. You, start, you spun the world in motion. You spun the stars in motion and the galaxies in motion and, and put everything in motion. And when we really think about all the movement of everything out there, it's pretty amazing to think about all the motions in this galaxy and this world. God has blessed our country especially very greatly. Okay, if you go back before the pilgrims and settlers from Europe came, and you look at the Indians' legends and stories of the weather they used to have, it's more like what we're starting to experience. And I think God, because we started this country on the right foundation, has blessed this country with, with the proper rain and the moderation of the weather. And because we're pulling away from him, I really believe that we're suffering from rejecting him. It's the same reason Israel, when they live in, in, the, in their land, produces all kinds of crops and is the breadbasket of the, of the Europe. When the, a and the Arabs were put in possession of that land, it did nothing but become desert. We see the blessing of God is very much on that land. So again, God blesses and says, this is what you get. And the more we pull back from God, the more we get what nature does. Nature was cursed when Adam and Eve fell as well. Violence in nature is not an uncommon thing because it is the result of sin and the death that it brings. So, and we see huge storms, we see all kinds of things. And you look in the history of, of the world and you look down and you, talk and you see these massive storms that places had and plagues of locusts and everything and all the different things that people have experienced. And then you see what this country is starting to experience. Uh, you know, attacks from bees. You know, it's all through history, bees have been very violent to humanity. Swarms of bees, and even when you look at it, God said, I will drive the Canaanites out with, with hornets. That was literal in some of their battles that he drove them out with hornets. And we've seen all these different attacks, you know, killer bees coming up from South America, coming into America swarms of bees attacking people. I mean, all these things are interesting to see as God allows nature to affect his people. You know, the mosquitoes with Zika virus, the mosquitoes with the West Nile virus that, that have been the big problem, especially for animals. All of these things that God allows to happen because of sin. We don't really sometimes think about how sin affected the world. Paul said that the whole world groans because of sin. The, all of the poisonous plants and the thorns and the thistles and death 
and destruction, all because of the sin of Adam and Eve. It's an amazing impact that man had. Why did man have such an impact? Because God gave man dominion on this world. We were supposed to rule this world basically as gods of this world. Now, we've got different you know, uh, false religions and everything talked about becoming gods of the world. But that was what God had originally given us, the position where we were in charge of the animals, in charge of, the, of all of creation. We were to have dominion over it. And when man sinned, he gave that right to, to the devil. And the devil is called in scripture, the God of this world. Why? Because man, Adam and Eve, handed him that right by sinning. So we see this and we see the result in the world. Earthquakes, calamities, all the bad weather that comes, comes in, the destructive nature that we have. Can you imagine what this world would have been like without all the destructive elements of nature? We really can't. You know, we can't really because all we've known is this world. This world of death. This world of destruction. It's getting worse. And it's getting worse because we're pulling away from God and God's saying, okay, you want to reject me? Here's the results of, direct, of rejecting me. You're going to get the weather. You're going to get the nature. You're going to get the animals. Remember, in, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, God says, I'm not going to drive the, the, all these ites out of the land because then the animals will take over. He says, you have to drive them out because he didn't want the animals to take over. And you think about how fast does nature take over an area when people aren't there to maintain it. You think about these Aztec, huge Aztec cities that they stumble on in South America and Central America as they go through the jungles and all of a sudden they come across a stone city that's been empty for just a couple, you know, a couple thousand years, maybe uh, 1600 years and they come in and they come to the jungle and they go to the middle of it and it's totally taken up. When I lived in Guam, we'd go, we'd go hunt, you know, walking out in the boonies and out, out in the middle of nowhere, covered with bushes and stuff, you'd find a tank. You know, bombed out tank, but you'd find a tank. And unless you actually touched it, you didn't know it was there because it was covered with all the vines and the bushes. And that was only talking, you know, I lived there in the 70s, so we're only talking 20 years from the time of the war you know, 20, 30 years from the time of the war to the time that everything was covered over. You would go out into the water and see where these troop carriers had been sunk and they were covered with coral and everything and you didn't see the troop carrier anymore, you just saw the shape of it with the coral stuck to the, to the metal. How fast nature will destroy what man puts in there. And we all know if you leave your yards or your streets alone long enough, the weeds will take over yards and streets with no problem. Now, it doesn't take long, but the destructive nature that we have out there is all part of the fall. Breaking down of things is part of the fall. And God said he established this world. He created it to be perfect. And because of sin, we see all of this damage that has happened to the world. And we see all of the destructiveness. And then we had, then on top of that, we add man's inhumanity on man and, and their sinful nature and their desire to do what's wrong because of that sin nature being let go and not being subject to God. And we see the violence that man on man. And we say, how, how much worse can it get? 
It says in the end days it was going to be like the days of Noah where everybody did what was, what was right in their own eyes. We're awfully close to that point. People, people are starting to do just that. Do what's right in their own eyes, which tells us we're close. We are close to the end days. How close we are? We don't know exactly how close we are, but it is very close. I can't imagine how much worse it's got to be before it's like the days of Noah, but that's when God got fed up. And he said, okay, Noah, you've got 100 days until the days of man are numbered, 120 years are left. He had 120 years to build the boat for his day and with, uh, with other ever tools. It probably took him most of the 120 years to build that boat. Yeah. It's amazing how big that boat is. I got my magazine from Answers in Genesis and they had a picture of their opening day. There's hundreds of people out at the ceremony and in the background is the ark, the life-size ark that dwarfs the picture of the hundreds of people in front of it. And I've got a number of copies that I'm going to bring in and people can look at, but it, it just shows you how big the ark was. And we don't really think about it, but it was 400, 450 feet long. It's the size of four football fields. Four football fields long. It is the size of a air, small aircraft carrier, and people don't even bother having the idea that an aircraft carrier holds a lot of planes. And they go, well, that big boat couldn't hold all these people, or he couldn't build a boat that big. All he needed was a boat that floated. He, didn't, he wasn't looking to go anywhere. God just told him to build a boat. He, just, he could have made a square boat that floated up and float down and stay floating. That's all he needed. He did it all by hand. Most likely he did by hand. I mean, again, we don't know the full technological advancements of the people before the flood. And this is something I've brought out to people. You had 1,500 years from the time of Adam to the time of the flood. Very smart, because Adam was, had a very large intelligence. He named every animal. He named the animals in less than a day. Most of us have trouble naming our kids, you know, and we get months to plan that. And he named all the animal, gave names to all the animals, so he had a very sharp mind. By the third generation, they were already doing metallurgy that we didn't rediscover after the flood until six, seven hundred years after the flood. And man was doing these things, you know, making bronze and, and everything within three generations of Adam. They were smart. How much technology did they have? How much, how much could they move? How much could they do? We don't know, but I suspect that they could do a lot more than we think they did through technology and planning. You know, did they have computers? No, I don't think so, but they had a lot of information. They had a lot of, but the Bronze Age in after the flood didn't start until, I can't remember what it was, but it was at least eight or 900 years after the flood that the Bronze Age came back. And they found it out within Within three generations, they've got people being, and, and this guy started working metal and doing bronze and all of these things. And so, but you've got to figure, God walked with Adam and Eve and probably gave them a lot of knowledge about a lot of things that we never, because we always get this idea before the flood that they were kind of dumb. They were backwards. They were, you know, they, they had all these problems. And I don't think that they were near as dumb or backwards as we, we think they were. I think they were pretty advanced in many areas. Well, when uh, they were building a temple, then God gave certain people knowledge yes. to work with this, and certain people knowledge to work with, so they knew how to cut stone. Yeah, both the temple and the tabernacle, God people gave people special 
special uh, instructions. And so God is fully capable of giving people more advanced knowledge. And he does it even today. How many people have you met that are really good evangelists? They haven't been really taught to be an evangelist. They just are good. God has gifted them to share the gospel. And it amazes me, and I've shared with this. I went out to lunch with him with an evangelist, and he told 30 or 40 people about the gospel while we had lunch. And none of them seemed to be offended. I mean, if I had told five people in the restaurant about the gospel, they probably, a couple of them probably would have been offended because I'm clumsy sometimes in the way that I present the gospel. He was talking to everybody, and, not, and nobody, you know, not everybody was really responsive, but nobody seemed to be offended. Some people are gifted to teach. They can just teach really easily. And they study and they teach and, and it's easy for them. Other people couldn't teach if you, if you threatened them with a gun, they would have trouble per, you know, preparing a message to teach. Others are good at just serving people. There are people who are good at serving. Nobody taught them. They're just really gifted at helping people. So even in our day and age, we've got people that get gifted special work. We have some people that are gifted to do maintenance. And, I, and I've shared with you, I'm not that kind of person. I can't nail two boards together straight. I can't even cut two boards, you know, even after I measure them and, and, and everything, I still can't cut the boards. I am not the one to do maintenance work, okay? I am not gifted to do that. But there are people that are just gifted. It seems like everything they do works. They seem to get it Right, but it is important for us also to understand what our gifts are between God, with God and work in those gifts. I, I, was telling, I was telling the guys at the prison, one of the guys was getting out, he goes, I don't know what I'm going to do in a church. I'm going, just go to the church and talk to the pastor and offer to do anything. I'm going, you, you never know what it is. I go, you're a hard worker. If you just told them you'd want to clean the church, they would probably say, yes, that's great. Because sometimes we belittle these simple gifts. Mm -hmm. Well, all I do is serve at the church. The church needs servants. Well, all I do is repair at the church. The church needs people who can repair. That saves a lot of money to the church from having to go out and hire people to do all this stuff. Well, all I can do is clean. I have good eye for deep. Well, be my guest. Clean the church. Whatever it might be, sometimes we belittle. We go, well, I'm not the teacher. I'm not the pastor. I can't, I can't preach. I can't evangelize. Well, not everybody's got those gifts. And, every, and if everybody had the same gift, the church would have a hard time functioning. And that's what Paul said, you know, can the foot say I'm not, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye or, you know, I, I'm not part of the body because I'm the eye and not the ear. He I goes, like that. You know, Action. Yeah. He goes, where would it be if we were all, you know, and you figure this, if everybody was an eye? I know. No, we, yeah. we can watch a lot of things. We can't do anything. We can't do anything about anything we see, but we can see really well. We can hear really well because we're all ears, but we can't do anything with what we hear. We need all the gifts that God gives us. And sometimes people have more than one gift, and that's fine also. But God can also give you a special gift. You know, sometimes you may be getting a gift for a short time. I've met people like that. The church was so small that they needed somebody to teach, and somebody was gifted to teach for a short time. And then when a teacher came along, that gift seemed to go away from them, and the teacher took over. And they couldn't teach if their, if their life depended on it. We don't know what God can do for us. And we need to be ready to be happy with whatever it is he has gifted us with. Mm -hmm. And not be jealous that I'm not something else. And it's very important that we understand that. Verse 2. Yeah, verse 2. Half hour in verse 2. 
Your throne is established of old. You are from everlasting. God's throne is established. And actually it says he from old, which is even kind of uh, not quite true because it says you are from everlasting. His throne was really established from old. He's been on his throne since before anything was there to be ruled. He sat on a throne. He was in charge. He is the master. He is the sovereign. And he decided, and as we've said before, he decided to create this world knowing that man was sin, would sin so that he would have to redeem man and bring them t unto himself. And that just to me is an amazing thought. You know, to create this world knowing, knowing, I mean, it wasn't a surprise to him that we were going to sin or that Adam and Eve would sin and that we would follow in sin. And in Revelation, it tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And we've talked about this. As soon as Jesus said, yes, Father, when, when we create these people and when they sin, I will give my life to buy them back. At the moment he said yes, God says they've been redeemed. Even before they were created, God said they've been redeemed. Because Jesus said he would. Then he created us and, and told Adam and Eve that this child was coming that was going to buy us back. It wasn't a surprise to him and it wasn't an afterthought that we were redeemed before we were even created. And you want to talk about trying to figure out some crazy stuff. We were bought back before we were even created to fall in the first place. What an amazing thought that that was what he had in plan because he is everlasting. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit got together and said, okay, we're going to create humans. They're going to fall. Son, you're going to die for them. Holy Spirit, you're going to go around and convict them of their sin and bring them, bring them to, Jesus, to accept Jesus. And then once they accept Jesus, you're going to fill them and help them, help them become more like us. All of this done before he even created us. Verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. And floods here are literally rivers. And he's talking about the rivers coming to flood stage and, and showing tumultuous times. But yet, even above all of this, God still rules. And he talks about that last one, waves. He's talking about the breakers on the, on the, on the ocean type waves. And if you've ever been near an ocean, especially during storm time, and you hear those breakers coming in on the water and they come crashing, especially if there's rocks and not just a beach to crash on. They make enough noise just if there's a beach. But if you ever go any place where there's rocks and stuff for them to really crash into, there it gets very noisy. And this is what he's talking about, the tumult of the waves and the floods and how, how violent floods can be, even in rivers, how much a river can over, how much damage a river can cause. I watched... I watched the news broadcast from a, just the other day where, uh, where the monsoon was, I can't remember if it was Tucson or Phoenix, but it showed the torrents of water rushing across a skate park and crashing yeah, in. And I can't imagine how much destruction that water did. And it looked like a rushing river. Mm -hmm. And you know, I tease people you know, so during the big storms that Kingman has the river running through it because we got all the, all the washes go to the one big wash and it's like a river running through there if enough rain falls down. And it, looks, and it looks interesting, you know, as you look at this water and how fast water can come and how much damage water can do. 
and we don't even think about this, the damage that water can do, and he's talking about here, the floods are lifting up. Troubles, trials, hardships are coming up. And then in verse 4, And the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. As mighty as the water can be, God is greater. And again, we think about this. We, how much damage can water do? You know, water, essential to life. Without water, we die. And yet, water can also be the most destructive force that there is. A, flooded, a flooding can take away buildings, can wash away cars, can actually literally wash away buildings in, its, in their movement. We have these storms on the ocean that come along and wipe out all these idiots who build their houses right on the beach in front of the, in front of the ocean. I don't feel sorry for them. Knowing that their house will be destroyed on the first big, big, big storm that comes along. And then we've got idiot insurance companies that will insure them so they can build their building right back in the same place for it to be knocked down again at the next big storm. Or build right on rivers. Yeah. Right on the rivers. And we see the damage that rivers can do. You know, during, uh, what was it, Katrina, where, where uh, New Orleans went underwater because of all the storms and the rain and, and, and flood, and the damage that water, just, just standing water does damage to buildings, not, not even counting the rushing of the water. And the force of it hits. And the force of it when it hits. And, and we see this type of thing. We, and here in, here in Arizona, we're told, don't go into a... A, a wash when the water's flooding, flowing, because even six inches to twelve inches can move your car down the down the wash. And we don't really think about the power of water. Uh, if a dam breaks, you know, we we've seen the the devastation that a dam breaking can do, as a, an entire wall of water comes rushing down a valley and, and wipes out towns in its way. And and here he's saying. God, you're even more powerful than all of that, because that's one of the strongest things that, they, that he could think of. I mean, wind can do the same thing, but water is actually one that, especially the Jews, they did not like water. They were never known as, as sailors. They, they, they took their small boats out on, on Galilee and, and, and all, but they were never known for their sailing. When Solomon wanted to go to the gold mines that are around India, he had to go to the Syrians and say and hire sailors for the ships that he built because they did not have sailors and navigators. He had to go hire people that could make the treacherous trip and get to where they were going. So we see the, the Jews have never been a, a seafaring nation that, that was at, at home on the sea. And all through the scriptures you see them, there's almost a fear of the sea. When they talk about the sea, there's that... Uh, a, a fear of it that they did not like it because it, it was hard and for those countries that did sail they learned how to handle the storms but even they lost lots of ships during storms and the seas have always been a treacherous place those who go to sea have always known that their life was was going to have a good chance of maybe not existing especially when you had the sailing ships and you had to climb the riggings in the middle of a storm to take things down you, know, you had to hold on and be strapped in, but many of them fell out. Many people got washed off the ships because of the, because of the storms. And we see s storms, and I've talked to sailors uh, over time, you know, and they talk about the, 
the, the waves that go bigger than their ships <laughs> and having to make sure they've got the ship faced the right way in the middle of a storm. And it would, it would be scary. Mm -hmm. And we figure we've got big ships. <laughs> you know, we've got big ships that don't, don't notice the waves quite as much as they did back in those days. And we think about, you know, people have talked about, you know, the Puritans when they came over in those little tiny ships. And I don't know if you've ever seen their ships. I li I've lived on the East Coast. I've seen the Mayflower. I've seen some of these small ships that they cross the ocean in. They look like little tiny, you know, they're not much bigger than some of the luxury um, yeah. yachts that uh, these uh, rich people buy and not near as nice. <laughs> And they crossed the Atlantic Ocean in these little tiny tubs, not knowing the weather that they were coming into, but God protected them in those things. And you know, you think about that, and if you've seen those ships, you go, wow, how could anybody have crossed the ocean in this? Uh, we see like the Constitution, the, the warships of that day that went back and forth. They weren't that much bigger either. Now we think of ships, we think of ships, you know, we, we don't think of these little things that the early, you know, and I'm talking about the little things that, you know, were, were valent in the 1600s and 1700s that went around the, around the globe, and this is even further back. So we're not talking very huge ships that they're talking about, and there was that fear. And he's saying, God, you're greater than, the, you are greater than the rushing mighty water. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan to go enter into the land under Joshua. The Jordan was at flood stage. It had overflowed its banks. And God said, send the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and when their foot touches the water, the water will stop running. How would you have liked to have been the Levite carrying the Ark, especially the front one, one whose foot had to touch the, the flood which you didn't go into, you know, you want to talk about faith. That had to have been a huge amount of faith for that poor Levite to touch the water and say, God is going to stop this water. Because if he didn't, you and the ark were going down the river to the Dead Sea, and you weren't going to stop it. You want to talk about faith. I don't know that I would have had that much faith. And yet, they stepped in the water, and God stopped the water That's why flowing. I that to him. The people had really strong faith. They seem to have had some greater faith than we ever yeah. ever seem to have. But you know, there was a trust also there that God was going to be, and they had built that faith. They had been wandering the, the wilderness. They had seen the manna given. They had seen the quail given. They had seen the victory in the battles that they shouldn't have won. So yes, they had a good reason to have that faith. Same way we build our faith. We get into God's word, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But in reality, when our faith is tested, and God delivers, we get more faith. We get more confidence in him by each test. This is the purpose of all the tests we go through, is so that we start to understand that God is faithful. And because he is faithful, has been faithful, the next test that comes my way, I should be able to say, God, you will be faithful. And that's the whole purpose of all these tests that we go through, that we show that God is faithful. People can see from our faithfulness that God is faithful. And they, are, and they see 
We, they watch us walk through trials that should, be, should knock, us, knock us for a loop and we just stand with God and let him be our defender and we walk through the trial. We walk through the test and people look and say, how do they do it? And I hope you've had people come up to you and go, well, I don't know what you have, but I'm really going through hard times and, but, and I've watched you go through this and you don't seem to be phased, and you get a chance to witness. I've done this many times in the restaurant business where people looked at me and said, how do you stay calm when all this chaos is going? How do you keep a smile on your face when somebody's yelling at you because they didn't get what they wanted? How do you do this? How do you do that? And it opens up the opportunity to say, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about my God who gives me the strength to go through these things. Do you really want to, do you want to know this God? Here's how you do it. And we share with people because they're looking at what we're going through and saying, I don't understand how you do it. I look at the world and I don't understand how they can go through anything. And you know the sad thing is, many of them don't. They turn to their drugs, their alcohol, they commit suicide because they cannot handle the things coming their way because they don't have God to handle them. And as I said, I've talked to people who go, well, I don't need a crutch. I go, so what is your crutch? Everybody has a crutch. Even those who say they don't have a crutch have a crutch. Whether it's being a workaholic, spending all their time at work, alcohol, drugs, vegetating in front of a TV. Maybe it's research. They spend all their time researching, but they put all their effort into something, and they have a crutch. Everybody does. I just, I'm willing to admit that God is my crutch and I'm not, I'm not going to have a problem with that. He's the one that gives me my support. I hide in him just as he's telling us to. He is our strong tower. He is our defender. He is our refuge. Jesus said it, I am be yoked to me and I will be the one that carries the burden. He says, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. All these different ways that it's said in the Old Testament, it's got the warlike image. Get Hide, hide from the enemy and just... Let God be the one that beats, the storm beats on. Jesus says, take my yoke, it's easy. And then we don't understand that because we don't understand yoking animals, but when you yoke animals, one is the leader carrying the weight and the other one's just kind of being drug along for show. Now, yeah, they put their shoulder in, but they're not the one doing the work. It's the, the lead one, and Jesus is the lead one. He's carrying the weight. He's, he's leading us, and we're just kind of walking along with him, you know, tied to him. But if we cast all our cares upon him, you know, how many cares do we keep for ourselves and we struggle with instead of casting them on God? How many things do we worry about that we're fearful of rather than saying, God, I just, you're, 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 you've got big shoulders, God. You take this and you kind of walk me through the problem. When we're, when we're new in Christ, it takes time to learn. And we've talked often. When we're young in Christ, it's, it's hard to do these things. But the more we do these things, the easier they become, even though the test gets harder. We learn to forgive people. And those first couple times we're learning to forgive people is very hard. <laughs> Maybe we don't even forgive them very well. But we go on and on and on and on. And eventually, because we've done it so much and God's helped us learn and grow in it, we just get to the point where, oh, they're forgiven. Before we learn forgiveness, we're, we're usually waiting for them to ask for forgiveness. Well, when they ask for forgiveness, God, I'll forgive them. A lot of people will say that. Well, they never ask for forgiveness. Who cares? God forgave us before we asked for forgiveness. 
Jesus died for us so that he could forgive us before we ask for forgiveness. You know, the greatest attribute we have is to forgive somebody before they ask, ask for forgiveness. Just forgive them. Then you won't harbor bad feelings for them. You won't have problems seeing them. You just say, God, I'm forgiving this person. Help me to clean my mind and refresh my mind. Walk away. This changes the whole way we think about somebody. If you've forgiven somebody, you're not holding a grudge against them. If you've forgiven them when they show up, you're not feeling tense and angry because you're waiting for them. You know that they've hurt you. When you forgive them, you're able to deal with people in a much kinder way. If you forgive somebody, which, I mean, if you forgive somebody, that doesn't mean you have to go and like have tea with them, do you? Nope. No. Just because you've forgiven them doesn't mean that they're going to be your best friend. They might not even be a friend at all. But the forgiveness does take away the anger, the bitterness, the hatred it's seeing them. Does that mean when, because I've forgiven them that I'm going to open up my life and let them do the same thing over and over and over again? No. I've forgiven them from what they're doing, but that doesn't mean that you know, they stole from me, so I'm going to invite them into my house you know, and give them a key to my house so they can come in whenever they want. Okay? It, that's not what forgiveness is about. But forgiveness is giving up my right to be angry with them or demanding that they get punished. That's God's place. In the next chapter, we're going to talk about how God is the God of vengeance. It's his job to take revenge, not ours. And when we give that forgiveness to somebody, we're not sitting there, oh, I wish they would get, they just need to be punished. They, you know, they're so bad, they, you know, the God, you've got to punish them because of how much they hurt me. We give up that right and say, God, I'm just going to love them. I don't know how I can love them, but I'm going to give up this right to demand punishment. Same thing we have still on the, on the, on the PowerPoint, the, the thing of forgiveness. I give up my right to talk against them. I give up my right to think about bad about them. I give up my right to try to make others think bad of them as I tell the story about what they did to me. And we do this all the time. Even with people we don't know, we tell them all about how this person was so bad they may not even know the person, but what we're doing, we're assassinating the character of that person to people who either know or don't know that person. Either way, we're being bad in destroying that person's reputation with other people because we're telling them about how bad they were to us and how much we despise them because of what they did to us. And you know, even if it's true, it's not what we should be doing. It is not what we're supposed to be doing, even if it's true. Okay? And this is the same problem with gossip. Many people will be participating in gossip and they go, well, it's true, it happened to me. It's still gossip assassinating somebody's character, even if it's true. Now, can I warn somebody who's getting too close to somebody who's gonna hurt them? You probably should at that point saying, I would be very careful with this person without going into the long convoluted story of what they did to you or what you know that they did to somebody else. And usually you would have to have first-hand knowledge to know that they did this. And so you go, no, you know, you need to be careful around that person because they've hurt other people. Okay? And you don't have to go into the details. Same thing when we, when, we're pray, when we do prayer requests. Christians are really good about gossiping in the idea of, let me give you a prayer request. And we tell you all about the person's problems. And, and where they're wrong and where they're hurt people and how bad they are and j we just need to pray for them. Okay, well, just tell me that I need to pray for this person that, that you know, and I don't need to know everything, you know, that was done. 
When I first got here, there was an individual who wanted to tell me all about the problems of everybody in the church. I had to say, stop. If I need to know any of this, which I probably don't, God will show me what I need to know. But you need this to minister. I go, no, I can minister just fine without knowing any of this. And this is the way we need to be with people. When people are wanting to share with us the bad that somebody's done, let me tell you how bad this person is. We need to stop them and say, no, we don't need to go there. We'll pray for this person if we need to, but we're not, we don't need all the details of what's wrong in their life. Can you imagine if God did that to us? Let me share with you every sin that this person's done in their life. Most of us couldn't handle that, especially those secret sins that we think nobody knows in our life. And God says, I'm going to share everything. It's definitely not what we want. And yet we do this to, we do this type of thing to other people. Instead of once upon a time, just right We tend to do this with other people. And there is no So but we want to we want to keep this in mind. How do we respond? How do we how do we react to other people? What do we share? The, Whoso loveth a brother covers sin. Doesn't mean that we forgive it or that we say, you know, well, it's okay. No, it's not okay that they sin, but we're not going out and spreading it around to everybody. When I talk to people who are, who are living in sin and, and, and their sin comes up, I will tell them it is a sin. I'm not condemning them. I'm not judging them. I'm just saying it is a sin. Okay? Now, if they get convicted and judged, that's between them and God. But I'm not going to say... Well, I can't be near you because you're a sinner. If I did that, I'd have to be near nobody because we're all sinners. And the problem is we tend to think of my sins are not as bad as somebody else's sins. Well, they still stink. <laughs> all of our sins still stinks. In human terms, it may not be as bad as somebody else's sin, but in God's eyes, it's awful. And when we look at things that God calls an abomination, he calls gossip and lying an abomination. Why? Because it doesn't just hurt the physical, and the, it hurts the soul. Mm -hmm. Gossip and lying hurts the soul of the in individual who's created after the image of God, and it is serious business to, do the, to gossip and to, and to lie about people because of it hurting the soul. The last verse in this one says, Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness becomes your house, O Lord, forever. God's testimony is sure. When God says something, you can count on it. It is faithful. It is trustworthy. This is why we cover. When God says something in the scriptures, we need to be able to grab hold of it and say, God, you said this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to this. What's the greatest promise we're holding on? Eternal life. But it's kind of interesting to me that we're willing to accept that God is telling the truth about eternal life, but how many times do we struggle about him caring enough to take care of our daily needs? God, I just don't think you can do this, so I've got to go out and do it myself. God, I don't believe that you're going to protect me from this, so I've got to go do everything myself. Even though you say you're going to protect me, even though you say hide in you, even though you say do these things, I don't believe that you can do these things and yet we're going to be willing to accept that he can keep us for eternity? 
the whole universe, but you know, he still wants to have a personal relationship with each one of us and take care of each one of us individually. Yes, we tend to have this problem of thinking of God loves us enough to care for our daily and has enough time to pay attention to us. And then everybody else. And everybody else at the same time. True, though, that he wants to love us. Look at the people that lost their lives or, but sometimes when you think about the people who lost their lives, in many cases they're a testimony unto God's faithfulness because of the way they lived and the way their family accepts their death and God uses it to bring others to him. We don't understand sometimes. God says precious in his sight is the death of his saints. Why? They went home. They went home. The best thing that can happen to a Christian is to die and go home to God. Will we miss that individual? Yes. Should we be really sad that they died? No. <laughs> because the greatest thing that can happen to us is that we go home to God and get away from all the pain and struggles of this world. Yes, we'll miss them. Yes, we'll be a little sad because we miss them. But we should be happy for them because they've gone to be with the Father. They've gone to their reward. They got home before I did. They went home before we did, yes. <laughs> so, jealous, maybe. You know, they, yeah. they're, they're already home. I want to be. And then it says, holiness, separateness becomes your house, O God. God has his righteousness and his holiness that he indwells his temple with and indwells us. He's redeemed us. He lives in us and makes us righteous, makes us saints. Mm -hmm. We need to start seeing ourselves more as righteous saints, redeemed by God, made a new creation and made perfect. And as in Romans uh, 12, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. And transformed literally is metamorpho. And it literally is the same word as metamorphosis, where the caterpillar goes into the cocoon. And you know what happens to a caterpillar when it gets into a cocoon? You may not understand this, but a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, basically melts down to a bunch of goo, and then reforms into a butterfly, which has a different DNA structure than the caterpillar. God tells us that we're to be metamorphed from this natural being living in death to a supernatural being having the life of God in our very DNA so that we can behave and act like God in a world of darkness. The power of the change is magnificent. We are no longer sinners that will do sin because that's who we are. We are God's perfect saints who just inadvertently do sins. <laughs> but our nature is totally changed because when we do sins as a saved person, we get convicted. And this is what I've said over and over. If you can sin without being convicted, without having the desire to repent, you need to check in your life and say, God, am I truly one of your children? Because the hallmark is that we have a new nature that doesn't put up with sin. When we sin, there should be conviction in our life that says, I have done wrong, I need to repent. If we can sin without conviction, we need to look at ourselves and say, am I his child? Have, am I a new creation? And now I know that the people in this room especially know that, know that because I've heard the testimony many times. I can't do what I used to do, I get bothered by it. 
that is the sign of being a new creation that is under the testimony of God that he has changed us forever and he's indwelling us and when we do wrong we get convicted doesn't necessarily mean we're going to repent and, and, and but we will be convicted there is no joy in the sin and there may be joy for a moment but right, you know but even that when we're totally converted doesn't seem to be the case we know even as we're doing it that it's wrong and we get convicted and have to come to God and repent very important for us are we changed are we a new creation every test we have God is going to be glorified if we fail the test he's glorified because we turn around repent and come back to him and he gets to lift us back up after we've fallen if we pass the test he's glorified because we lived in his strength and so forth his power when you fall flat on your face and God says okay here's my child you're, and, you, and we forgive and we repent he goes okay here we are we're lifting you up and remember we've said this he doesn't put you back at the bottom of the ladder and say okay you've got to start all over he puts us back where we fell from because he says I am your God but I like the, it the, it's, better, it's better to pass the test it's always better to pass the test but when we fail He's the father of the prodigal child who runs out and says, no, you're not a servant. I'm not going to make you go back to the, to the pig. You know, you're not going to be serving until you prove to me that you're worthy to be my son. You are my child. You are still my child. You are, you are now still part of the house. You're going to sleep in the house. You are, you know, you've, you've wasted your inheritance, but you're still my child, and you're going to live here with me. He didn't go, okay, yeah, you're right. Go prove yourself. You're going to be a servant. And when you prove yourself that you deserve to be my son, I'll bring you back. When we fail, God lifts us back up as the prodigal son's father and says, here you go. You're still my child. You're still, you're still in the main house. You're not in the servant's house. You're not having to work, work as a servant for the rest of your life. You are my child. And then we turn around. We, we, because of our thankfulness and our position, we serve him anyway because of the thankfulness for who he's made us to be. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you, and we just thank you for your love, that you are sovereign, that you are the one that cares, and we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.